This podcast is sponsored by Rask Invest, my guide to money and investing on the ASX and globally. To learn more about Rask Invest, follow the link in your podcast player. This podcast contains general information only, not personal financial advice. That means you shouldn't rely on the information to make an investment decision. Also, people appearing on the show may have a financial interest in the products or shares mentioned. To learn more, grab a copy of the Rest Group's Financial Services Guide available on each of our websites. Finally, don't forget that in November 2019, the Rest team and I will be hosting investor events in Melbourne and Sydney with lots of great guests and giveaways. The events are sponsored by our friends at ShareSite and Strawman.com. In addition to the evening events, I'll be hosting up to 20 DIY investors for intensive one-day investing research and valuation workshops. If you want to learn the nitty-gritty of investing in businesses, follow the link available in your podcast player to learn more. Carlos, thanks for joining me on the show. Thanks for having me, Owen. Uh, I'm conscious of time here and uh, I know you've got lots of insights to share. So what we usually do with the program is I'll throw it over to you to tell us how you came to be the, the investor that you are today, the business that you have, how, where did that come from, the genesis of that. And what we do is we throw back to the beginning, early influences towards money or investing, and uh, maybe just you know where you grew up, set the scene for listeners and I. Yeah, sure. So I, I grew up in, in Bondi Beach um, nice. in, in the 80s, where it was a very different suburb. It was essentially a working class suburb without the connotations that it has today mm-hmm. um, and I grew up in, a, in one of the emblematic streets of, of Bondi called Hall Street um, and I used to actually, um, my, my very first job was actually as a paper boy uh, and I worked for one of the, the local news agents and, and I used to do one of the paper runs. I did that for a few years and, <clears throat> and I remember you know, the, the first week's pay um, was the first mm money that I have actually ever earned and and I remember being highly satisfied with the whole process and the interesting thing about being a paper boy is that the pay was a variable format you got paid I think I got paid three cents per um, each paper delivery but then half of my income came from tips which was the client service delivery of it and it was sort of the first entrepreneurial um, exercise that, that I undertook and it had a, a formative effect on me in, in understanding that, you know, if you service clients properly, um, it is good for business. Mm. It, it's funny, you know, I, I see it and perhaps it's no surprise, the entrepreneurship of the guests we have on the show, it, it weaves throughout their life. So it starts early, or it tends to start early, not always, but it tends to, and then you see it pop up again and again and again throughout their journey. So let's, let's jump forward a little bit how did the spark for finance or money come to be? Did you study it in school or was someone influencing you? So, so what happened was I was actually quite a mediocre student um, okay. up until I think it was year seven or year eight where a subject called commerce, commerce was introduced to the New South Wales curriculum. And what I quickly found out was that I had a natural understanding of commercial and economic concepts. It just it was sort of like the, it just resonated with my with my understanding, and I became a very very good commerce mm-hmm. and, and then later economics student, um, and then that had a positive sort of flow on effect to the rest of, of my academic subjects. I became much much better at maths. I sort of gained mm-hmm. I gained a lot of confidence, but but I lo- I found the subject of commerce and how really society's organised and how it's functioned from from not just markets but but behavior and 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 societal structures just absolutely fascinating because it really 
it explained the external world to me and it was incredibly enlightening and I happened to be very good at it as well. So it was just a, a natural progression. And I had always had sort of a, a dormant interest in business and, and, and finance, but really it was I was very fortunate. I, I had a absolutely phenomenal economics teacher who I think was was very influential. He was just a very gifted teacher. Um, mm -hmm. not, not only did he have very strong domain understanding of economics, but he was just a wonderful communicator and, and, and really a great teacher. And, and I was very fortunate to, to have that teacher at the time and, and I think ended up being quite an influential person in, in, in terms of, of you know, my, my makeup as a person and, and, and my interest in finance. And so did you then take that and go on to study at uni? Yeah, so so I decided by the by the age of sixteen, I, I wanted to be, become a professional investor. I had my mm. mind set on it and, and and said, look, what's the pathway? What do I need to do, uh, in order to become a professional investor? And, and the logical progression was to get tertiary, have a tertiary education, and then possibly a postgraduate, and and sort of cut my teeth into to working in finance. And mm -hmm. so, yes, I did uh, economics at Sydney University with um, with a major in sub major in finance. Okay, and from my understanding, um, you you bought a share. What was it? Around about your first birthday, your eighteenth birthday. You just as a teenager, you started investing, right? Yeah, I I, I started following markets and and you know I did work experience at the stock exchange I did work experience with a with a stockbroker when I was 16 um, and I had a an active interest in financial mm. markets and you know I had through the years of working I had saved I think around two thousand um, dollars mm. and I understood that I that in order to build wealth I wasn't going to be able to do that through depositing the, that 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 small capital base in the bank I needed to assume some risks but but also to to deploy capital in an asset that actually builds long-term capital growth. And, and I studied all asset classes and quickly came to the conclusion that equity, equities by far over the long-term provides the greatest mm. economic return um, in terms of capital growth than any other asset class. So I was naturally attracted to that asset class sure. and then studying and, and trying to learn as much as I could about it. Mm. And, and so you, you've, you've gone to uni and... There's a period that we should talk about, which is the period between there and starting microequities. What what job did you take out of uni? Uh, I had a, a short stint at Odmanet. Um, it was straight after university. Um, I wanted to take a break, and I had a brother living in Spain. Decided to go on a on a holiday um, wow. to, to Europe. Uh, you know, I went to France first, which is right next door to Spain. And then I went to Spain um, and sort of my brother said, he sort of bent my arm and said, why don't you try Spanish life for a while? And I sort of ended up staying um, in Madrid for almost 10 years um, where I held wow. various senior financial positions. My last post was head of international equities at one of Spain's largest banks there. And through that time, I continued to heavily, personally heavily invest in Australian industrial small cap and oh, right. micro cap companies. So I had built already a, a sizable personal portfolio. And whilst I was working in Spain, I tried to access equity research on these companies that I was profiling and I was interested in and it was very hard to access um, and figured that there was a, there was a gap there in terms of, of, of information that needed to be met. 
So you're overseas and you speak Spanish. Right? I do speak Spanish, yes. So you're overseas working in Spain, but you're still investing and researching Australian companies. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I always wanted to invest in small companies because going back to that observation that I made very early on about equities being this 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 asset class that, that derives the, the best long-term economic returns, if you then sort of zoom in and then split equities into sub-asset classes, I also quickly came to the realisation that micro-cap and small-cap companies actually engender even better economic, long-term economic returns than large-cap counterparts. So I was naturally attracted to that small subset of the market being small-cap and micro-cap. And then I began to research and formulate an investment process in order to identify businesses that I thought were undervalued. Mm, Okay. And we'll get to all the small caps and um, why you like it so much in just a moment, how you feel to that. This, after you, or I guess before you came back and started microequities, this was the period after the dot-com boom and bust, and then it was in, we're kind of in the lead-up to the GFC. Um, were there any experiences, perhaps lessons learned from the, the, dot, the dot-com bust that you just hang around with you today? The dot-com bust was an absolutely phenomenal event to witness. Um, what surprised me, and, and I should be very candid and say that I didn't believe in a dot-com boom. I, in, I actually deployed a lot of capital at, at those points. In that point in time, the Australian stock market penalised what they, what they called old-school industrial businesses, and, those, and they had artificially depressed mark-to-market prices, whilst anything remotely related with a technology or a technology event skyrocketed. What was absolutely shocking, and I remember being, you know, travelling in, in my job in Spain, I, I travelled across Europe with a lot of investment professionals, was that these so-called professionals got caught in this mad wave of enthusiasm mm. that was really deracinated from any economic financial rationale. And I remember once, you know, there was an IPO um, in Spain. It was a web portal. It was owned by the 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 incumbent telco company and they were spinning off a web portal mm-hmm. and it spun off at an amazing price i think it, it spun off at a 10 billion 10 billion euro plus valuation and at one point um its market value outgrew the second biggest bank in spain and it was shocking to see that there were colleagues of mine in 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 this firm that i worked for that were supporting the thesis of that market valuation and i remember once I got up in front of the desk of, of the trading desk of mm. all these guys and girls and I said, let's conduct a market research. And I said, put your hand up if you've purchased anything through this web portal over the last 12 months. And not one hand stood up. And then I, I said, who here is a client of BVA? And about you know 40 or 50% of the hands showed up. And then I asked my colleague who was arguing in favour of this market valuation of this web portal, I said, how can you, how can you, rationally, how can you rationally support the market valuation? Its, its economics don't make any sense and therefore its market valuation is nothing but hot air. But, but that, that, was just a small, um, that was just a small element. That whole view of the, in, during the dot-com was actually widespread across the world in both in, you know, across the Atlantic and in Europe. And, and, you know, so-called investment professionals absolutely lost their compass and actually got drunk with enthusiasm of, of this dot-com era. And it was a very, it was a very telling and, and insightful lesson to understand that bubbles are created 
through various generations and madness sometimes prevails. Mm. Um, and so it was a very learning, very strong learning experience. We'll get to some of the more topical insights that you have in just a moment and maybe we can reflect on that experience today. But let's jump now to the genesis of microequities. What most people don't know is it didn't start as a funds management business, right? So perhaps you can take us through that and why you started it. Yeah, so, so going back to when I, was in Spain, when I was in Spain, I was trying to access quality in-depth research of, of mm. these microcap and small cap companies. And, and what was there was it, it, it was sporadic and often there were many companies I was very interested in, but there wasn't any research coverage. So I had an idea that why don't I set up a, an investment research business um, with with an idea to eventually evolve that into a funds management business, but at least let me start mm. researching these companies. And even if I don't end up with any clients, I'll, at least I'll be consuming the research because I need, I need to access research in order to formulate my mm. investment ideas. And, and, and so that was, that was the idea, and I think I founded Microequities in 2005 or 2006, um, initially as an investment research house. However, I had worked in, in banking and I knew that research is essentially just a cost centre. It's, it's not a terrific business model. So I knew that at some point that would evolve into a funds management business. And we did that in 2008. Um, and we did a lot of research in how to administer and run a funds management business. And then we launched our, our flagship fund, our deep value fund in, in March 2009, which is a very interesting time to be <laughs> both raising capital and deploying capital. Yeah, what most people don't know is that the deep value fund launched on March 6th, right? And I, 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 before the show, I went back and I looked up the ordinaries for that day uh, because I heard you mention this in a previous interview you did, and it was that exact day was the lowest point for the all-ordinaries in the global financial crisis. That is exactly right. And probably a lot of your listeners think, well, that's a, that's a wonderful time to, to actually be launching a fund. It wasn't actually perfect timing because if you think about it, you start on day one with 100% cash and the market's already beating you in day one because you're not 100% invested. And mm, so if you look at our deep value performance, I think we were underperforming the index, I think, for the first six months until we finally caught up and then uh, started beating the index. Um, it was a great time to actually be deploying capital. There's no no doubt about that. And, and there were prices there that were completely irrational and there was tremendous dislocation in, in, in equity valuations and, and a wonderful time to be deploying capital. On the flip side, investors were incredibly fearful and it was very difficult to be raising capital, which is always something that, that both fascinates mm. me and irritates me, that, that investors mm. get scared precisely at the time when they should be getting excited. Mm. It's kind of, you've got, you've, we've already spoken about the two, the irrational exuberance and then those super lows right so you couldn't deploy the capital quick enough effectively in those first six months we we, we were following in a very disciplined capital deployment process which is not about you know pushing prices up as we're in that capital deployment you know we have a very measured disciplined approach to it. and so you know, it takes us a while to deploy capital. We don't do it overnight. It, it took us a while to, to go 100% or very close to 100% fully invested and that's because you know you're targeting micro and small cap companies, at least in those days it was purely that. Perhaps now we can take the holistic view and maybe we'll just cast your mind back to when you first started. What was the investment philosophy and why was it small caps that you were focusing on? The investment philosophy hasn't really changed. Our idea is we 
seek to identify a business that we think has a likely and more importantly probable long-term growth pathway, i.e. its revenue, its earnings and its free cash flows will augment over time because that's what really drives the intrinsic valuation. So we want to to invest in those types of businesses. But importantly, we will only deploy capital if we identify one of those businesses if the market value is significantly lower than the intrinsic value, what we consider to be the fair measure of value. And so in order for us to to invest, we need to have the intrinsic value at a large premium to where the current market value resides. And why do we invest in small caps and micro caps? Because they have intrinsic value growth typically at faster rates than their large cap and mid cap. So over the long term, it is a true generalisation that small cap companies and micro cap companies will outgrow large cap companies. Another important attribute about small cap and micro cap companies is that a lot of the growth that they engender is company specific, it's business specific, i.e. it's not based on the prevailing macroeconomic cycle. So you can get businesses that because they have a new product that's in the early stages of the life cycle or they might have a market share uh, gain Mm -hmm. or they might be expanding geographically both internationally or nationally, their growth is dependent on company-specific factors, not the prevailing macroeconomic climate. So it is an asset that you can own independently of the, of the macro environment. And that's, that's exciting because what we're doing is we're parking long-term capital. We're not buying a business with a view of selling it in six or 12 months' time. We're buying a business because we think, A, the business is worth more um, currently than the market thinks, and B, this business is growing, and in five, six years from now, it's going to be its intrinsic value is going to be far higher than what it is today. Mm. I think that's what some people underestimate, particularly when they're new to investing. Right, the compounding of intrinsic value, not just necessarily the share price, but that that, that compounding is so important to focus on. I've heard you say before that there's uh, significant informational asymmetry, and to, maybe you can just break that down. I'll let you break that down for our listeners and what you mean by that. What I mean by that is professional investors through their research undertakings have access and availability to information that most other market participants, particularly retail investors, do not. And therefore, they have rich, a richer wealth of information in order to make investment decisions and valuations. And so that information asymmetry exists. A lot of the companies that we invest in have no research coverage. Mm-hmm. So there's no, there's not many professional investors assessing their investment thesis. And if you think about what institutions like us, institutional investors like us do, we are essentially agents of price discovery. We are pricing a business based on the intrinsic value. And if the market is disconnected from that, we make the market more efficient by, by, by buying from those sellers that think, it's, that think that the price is fair. Mm-hmm. And so we act as agents of price discovery. We, 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 uh, we work in effect to make the price more efficient. Mm. That's an interesting way to look at it. And um, you touched on it before about, I guess, the risk associated with microcaps. You said that they're not, I guess, subject to the whims of interest rates so much as they are business performance. And so where do you, how do you filter the universe? Because there's, there are so many smaller micro-cap companies here in Australia and even globally, many more. How do you filter that? 
Um, you know, and and I guess because I know uh, this is a leading question, I know the answer to it. But how do you, how do you minimise risk when you're doing your research? Yeah. So first of all, we we start with with the premise that we like to invest for profit, and that means that the underlying assets, the businesses we own, should be generating operational profits. We're not interested in businesses that have profits that are going to arrive in year two or year three of our investment because we think that augments the fundamental risks tremendously. So we want a business that's proven, that's got proven profitability, i.e. there is a credible economic rationale underpinning the activity of the entity. So we apply, first of all, a profitability filter. And guess what? When you do that, all of a sudden you've dramatically shrunk the small cap and micro cap universe and you've probably knocked off 50 to 60% of of the Mm. participants. So you've already condensed it. We have an aversion for for debt. We we like businesses not to be dependent on debt financing um, because debt financiers have a very different agenda to an equity financier. And so most of the businesses that we own, they either have carry no net debt or if they do have debt, they typically have very low levels of financial debt and very serviceable, um, very serviceable debt. So debt is another instrument that we use to filter out companies. We have no expertise within the investment management team at Microequities in resources. None of us have any geological background. So we let other people invest in direct mining businesses Mm -hmm. because we think they'll do a far better job than we do so we obviate mining and resources because we don't have any expertise so we stick to businesses that have a product or a service and then we take a good hard look at the type of business the model um, the market value versus the intrinsic value and then go do much further deeper analysis if we think a business might meet our investment criteria Mm -hmm. and just quickly we won't go into detail now but is it do you are you very prescriptive with the way that you value these businesses or is it you know do you use a discount cash flow analysis every time is there some sort of way you can encapsulate your process there so so sometimes we don't run a discount cash flow because the business looks so it's so undervalued that we don't need to we we don't need to formulate a discount Mm. cash flow we own for example a software business we own the cheapest software technology business on the asx and it's trading at 3.5 times enterprise value ebitda whatever dcf model we build is going to give us a far higher intrinsic value than than the current market value. So sometimes we get such um, market um, we get such market anomalies that we don't actually need to build a DCF. For other businesses we do. Um, however, our DCF is different to to other um, to other investors in that the weighted average cost of capital that we use to discount future cash flows has a significant fundamental risk component um, in, in, in formulating that discount rate. So we take into account the type of business it is, the quality of the business model, the quality of the management team, um, how many years it's been running profitably, how many years have they paid dividends consecutively, all these fundamental notions to, um, to value the risk and assess the risk. It's kind of a more realistic approach than what perhaps many students are taught in academia with... CAPM and all the rest of it. You touched on something there which was management and I've heard you say before there are effectively two ways that you assess management or two things you look for. Uh, are you able just to flesh them out for us? We, we, look, for, we look for alignment and competency. Mm-hmm. We, want, we want the management 
team to be aligned to equity holders. We want them to have the technical competency to, to, to lead the organisation, have great domain knowledge about their respective markets and industry, and, and to have leadership qualities. Importantly, their ethical compass has to be has to be assessed. We need to feel comfortable that they're not going to do anything untoward with respect to how they carry their office. Mm -hmm. And so we need to build and we've built the capability in, in, in forming and, and making judgments on the quality of those moral compasses and ethical compasses of the people we're sitting in front of and undertaking due diligence. And unfortunately, the systematic approach to that is small and the judgment element is big. But in our business, if you're going to be a professional investor, you need to build a significant skill set in being able to make those assessments. Mm. And so that you would, this is almost purely through meeting with them, you make that assessment of their character, if you like. We do. And keep, keep in mind, we'll probably have, you know, over 200 management meetings a year or more. Um, so, you know, after you've been doing this for a long time, um, you do develop a skill in identifying particularly management team. It's, it's a lot easier to identify shady management mm. um, because they, they all have common traits as to, as, to how they answer a, as to how they answer questions. And so, you know, we have come out of meetings where we have, the whole investment management team has concluded we are not going near this company because the people in front of us are mm. not credible. Mm. Um, I, I suppose for any, a retail investor sitting at home, probably the easiest way to do that is to attend conferences, seminars and see presentations from management. I mean, you can always just ask them outright, but may, they may not have the time. I'm conscious of time here, but as we come to the back end of the conversation, there is one thing I want to pick your brain on quickly, and this is this idea of how perhaps uh, index funds, and you've mentioned it off air before, quantitative investing yep. is um, impacting the way micro cap investors such as yourself or small cap investors operate? What we've seen, and, and passive funds have been available for a long time, but particularly over the last two years, we've seen a large inflow into passive and, and forward slash quant funds in mm -hmm. Australia to a degree where today they almost speak for about 30% of share ownership in our, in our respective asset classes, which might not seem like a lot, but it's actually massive. And what this means essentially is, and, and let me first say that we don't have any, any philosophical digression against passive and quant funds. We understand why they exist and, and they provide a service to investors. So we're, we're not opposed to their existence at all and, and we're happy that they exist. However, at the end of the day, a lot of the, the essentially the capital allocation process of passive funds is indiscriminate. Mm. And that has implications for the for, for our asset class what we think is, is starting to emerge is a bifurcation of, of market pricing in small cap and micro caps because of this large prevalence of quant and, and, and quant and passive funds and so we've seen some companies that are priced at dot-com like bubble uh, valuations and at a certain other end, we're seeing some companies priced at GFC-like valuations. You know, I mentioned that we own a software technology company on 3.6 times enterprise value profit. That business you could not buy if it was private anywhere near those multiples. Even if you paid 60% more, you wouldn't be able to secure a business of that scale and quality um, paying a 60% premium. And we think that's occurring because of this 
incre increase in the in the asset ownership of passive and quant funds, which essentially make the market more inefficient. Because coming back to what I said about active fund managers, active fund managers are agents of price discovery. So if the more of the market is made up of, of passive fund of passive funds, the market has less agents of price mm. discovery and there's greater pricing inefficiency, which for a value investor like us is a good thing. Yeah. And and you'd hope that the through your activities or through the company growing itself, it, uh, it, it closes the gap to intrinsic value. Well, what we've actually seen on that, Owen, is we've seen over the last two months, we've seen heightened merger and acquisition activity across our portfolios. Mm. So we're seeing industrial competitors or private equity funds who can't buy who can't buy like-for-like like assets at these price points, come into the listed space, offer large premiums to the mark-to-market valuations and take control of the companies because they know that, that there is these huge pockets of undervalued high-quality assets. Mm. And in our portfolio, we've seen five merger and acquisition events over the last two months. And these are signif at very significant premiums to the market value. Mm. I did notice in some commentary recently, one of your positions, GBST Holdings, uh, it's a company that I've followed for years and... It's just seeing it get snapped up. It's one of those businesses, like you said, that um, have more value than probably the market is ascribing to it. Okay, so last two questions from me, Carlos. First of all, how can our listeners get in contact with well, microequities and learn more about your funds and all the rest of it? Go to our website, mm -hmm. microequities.com.au. There's, there's live chat options. There's phone numbers you can speak to, to our friendly staff. Um, all our products are on display. And there's an insights tab there and people can access the latest thoughts from the team. Um, okay, final one from me then. If you could go back in time and tell yourself one thing about money, finance or investing, what would it be? It's a hard one. Maintain a long-term outlook on every investment decision that you take. That's the crucial one. Don't take a myopic approach to investing. That's fundamental. Wonderful advice. Thanks for your time, Carlos. Thanks for having me, Owen. Thanks for tuning in to the Australian Investors Podcast. To access more free interviews, get investment research and ideas, follow the link in your podcast player to one of our websites. And if you're on Twitter or Instagram, say hello. You'll find me with the handle at Owen Rask.